Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm really excited today to announce uh, that we have Dr. Rudy Tanzi joining us. Uh, Rudy comes to us from MassGen and Harvard University. He's the chair of research for the Cure Alzheimer's Fund. He discovered three early onset uh, familial genes, and he and his team um, use stem cells to create Alzheimer's in a dish. Most recently, he discovered how beta amyloid may play a role in the brain's immune system. And he has co-authored several books with Deepak Chopra, most recently, The Healing Self. Rudy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here. So I've, it took me a while to read. Um, you've certainly been in this field, I think, north of 35 uh, years now. Um, and a lot of people know about your work. Um, we spoke just over a year ago. And um, I, I, I thought we'd start this um, conversation. When we spoke over a year ago, we were talking about how you felt like um, there was really a lot of um, advances um, in science in terms of finding uh, the solution to beta amyloid plaque in the brain. Um, let's just pick it up from there. And what do you think is the biggest advancement we've had in research over the past year? Well, just for a little bit of background, you know, going back over 100 years ago, it was Dr. Alzheimer himself who first described the plaques and the tangles, the plaques being, you know, the debris that litters the outside of nerve cells and the tangles form inside. And he was the first to say, this is, looks like it's causing dementia. In that case, it was a female with an early onset Alzheimer's. But it wasn't, you know, for decades, you really didn't know how everything had worked, how amyloid works and plaques and tangles, how they, how they involved in the disease. And in the 80s and 90s, when we discovered the first Alzheimer's genes, um, including the amyloid gene, I named it amyloid precursor protein, APP. It's still the biggest drug target in, in industry for Alzheimer's. We still didn't know if amyloid caused the disease because we, we put these genes in mice and they would get amyloid and eventually have some issues, but they didn't get the tangles. There was a disconnect. And it wasn't until we invented these just a few years ago, Duyan Kim and our group invented what we call Alzheimer's in a dish. This was a cure Alzheimer's fund uh, foundation effort. And we could take many human brain organoids, grow them in a Petri dish, put the Alzheimer's genes in them, and then we see when they made plaques, after that you got the tangles. And if you stop the plaques, you stop the tangles. So that was the first real proof of concept, only a few years ago, that yes, get out of mice, do it in a human brain organoid, and yes, plaques cause tangles. And then from there you get what's called neuroinflammation, and then eventually dementia. And more recently, we've been asking, well, why do we get plaques in the brain at all? I mean, the you know, reason in the past was, oh, they just accumulate with age. But we have an answer maybe to why we get plaques as well now. So um, recently, there's been a lot of news around um, viruses, the herpes virus in particular. Um, and I know you had um, something to do with that research. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the association with herpes, vi the herpes virus and Alzheimer's disease and why that may be important for research? Yeah, I mean, picking up from why do we make amyloid? You know, um, we now know that amyloid accumulates in the brain 10 or 15 years before symptoms. So a lot of these trials that failed, clinical trials that failed, targeting amyloid failed because we did it too late. I like to say amyloid's the match, 
the tangles of the brush fires. And, and, and then at some point, the brain's immune system reacts to the plaques, the tangles, the little pockets of dying nerve cells with inflammation. Inflammation or neuroinflammation is the response of the brain to plaques, tangles, and pockets of cell death. The neuroinflammation then kills 10 or 100 times more nerve cells, and then you go on to dementia. So if amyloids the plaque, tangles the brush fire, neuroinflammation is the forest fire, with the clinical trials hitting amyloid, we were trying to put out a forest fire by blowing out the match. Now people are doing trials where they hit patients very, very early, even before symptoms, to stop the amyloid. The next question, and this gets to your question, is why do we get amyloid? And you know, who strikes the match? Who's lighting the match? And what we found in our lab is that, and we just published this in the journal Neuron, and this is with Rob Moyer and my group, is that herpes viruses, or it could also be bacteria or even fungus like yeast, when small bits of this occur in the brain, even tiny amounts, the amyloid forms around the virus instantly. Within 24 hours, you get a plaque with the virus inside trapped. These are called extracellular traps. They're part of our innate immune system. So all over our body, when we get an infection, you know, the antibodies and all that, you usually hear about take a while to kick in. Before that, these primitive innate immune, what are called antimicrobial peptides, accumulate around the microbe and trap it just to neutralize it or kill it. In the brain, what we found is plaques are actually extracellular traps, part of the brain's immune system to trap the, uh, the herpes virus, or we've also shown it can happen with bacteria and yeast. So we're not saying you have to have a virus or a bacteria to make a plaque. There's other ways to make a plaque, you know, due to genetics, for example. Um, and we're not saying that viruses are, like herpes are causing Alzheimer's disease yet, but we, find, we did find this clear link that viruses like herpes, namely HHV6, HHV7, which are the roseola viruses, you know, when a baby gets a rash, the red rash on their face, these viruses reactivate in, in older age. And also the herpes simplex virus one, to a lesser extent that causes cold sores. Um, they reactivate and the amyloid instantly gets seeded and forms a big mass around the virus and traps it to protect the nerve cells in the brain. So we think that's what's striking the match. We think that's what's get, getting you amyloid. But of course we know from the familial early onset genes I discovered and others discovered decades ago, you can have genetic factors to get you those plaques anyway. You don't even need a virus or bacteria. You can get the, you get the plaques all the time just because of genetic changes. Those are the early onset familial mutations that do that. So the virus could just be a trigger to this, this process and perhaps giving us too much amyloid um, that, you know, a healthy, unhealthy level of amyloid, um, beta amyloid. Yeah, we think that, you know, you need a small amount of amyloid beta protein, the peptide around to get ready to protect the brain. The brain, you know, used to be thought to be sterile, but if you really look in the brain, you'll find viruses getting reactivated, you find bacteria, especially as you get older, the immune system weakens a little bit, and that blood-brain barrier that keeps out the pathogens weakens a little bit. Oh dear, I think we've lost him. Oh, you're back. We yeah. lost you for a second, Reedy. Sorry. Yeah, no, I saw that. No, the, <laughs> the brain has this very primitive immune system. It's at the, about the same level as an oyster or a horseshoe crab. 
which says if there's any type of infection, it makes this little protein, amyloid beta protein, and it binds to the microbe, it traps it, and neutralizes it. That, we think, is one of the triggers for Alzheimer's as plaques go to tangles and neuroinflammation. Right. Um, so we're, we're getting questions in um, on this topic. Um, so one of the, these questions are saying, like, some people live with plaques without symptoms of Alzheimer's, right? So what does the latest research say about why those people um, may be protected? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I was going to get into that, so I'm glad someone asked. Um, we study um, what are called resilient brains. So they're not very common, but once in a while you get someone who passes at 80 or 90, they were cognitively fine, no dementia. You look in their brain and you might see tons of plaques. And, and many times in these, these resilient brains, as we call them, you see plaques and tangles, levels of plaques and tangles that say this should have been an Alzheimer's patient. Why weren't they? And what you can see is somehow their nerve cells didn't die, which you always see in these cases of resilient brains, plaques and tangles, no dementia, you see the same thing, and it's no neuroinflammation. The brain's immune system stayed chilled out, so to speak. The brain's immune system did not react to those plaques and tangles and pockets of ensuing cell death with an inflammatory response. And because of that, you didn't kill the exponentially more, 10 times, 100 times more nerve cells the plaques and tangles kill, and you stave off dementia. So that's really good news, because it says technically, we can live with lots of plaques and tangles, and if the brain's immune system doesn't react against that with neuroinflammation, where these cells called glial cells, which are usually housekeepers, get all worked up and say, oh, we have to protect the brain, nerve cells are dying, there must be something wrong, it must be an attack, an infection. And the same little cells that are usually like scrubby bubbles, housekeepers cleaning the brain, cleaning the plaque, especially at night when you sleep, become soldiers. They shoot up these free radicals that kill nerve cells. They're trying to just clean out the area, but the friendly fire, the collateral damage, kills more nerve cells than the plaques and tangles. Some people just don't have that immune response to the plaques and tangles. They get protected from Alzheimer's despite the presence of the plaque and tangles. So isn't that why some researchers have become skeptical of the beta amyloid hypothesis and how plaques are related? Um, you know, if you do have people with a lot of plaques and tangles in their brain, could it be possible that in fact, um, maybe we're looking in the wrong place? Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that was an interpretation that, that was debated for decades because in the mice, remember, you remember in the mice, we put in these mutations that, that Guaranteed early onset Alzheimer's by 60 years old, these terrible mutations in the amyloid precursor protein gene, the presenilin genes that we co-discovered in 1995. And, and these genes all have in common one thing, even the APOE risk factor for late onset, the most common risk factor, all four of the first genes have in common that you get more amyloid in the brain. But in the mice, when you put those genes in, they got amyloid, but they didn't get the tangles and they didn't get real Alzheimer's. But now we can rest this debate. Just if, you know, if folks who still think that, think that, read our Nature paper in 2014 that says in the brain organoids, human brain organoids, if you have plaques, tangles follow. If you stop the plaques, you stop the tangles. And we also now know that plaques come very early. So I think most people who really read the literature, who really take time to read the scientific papers and keep up will not argue with the amyloid hypothesis. Uh, the ones who maybe just read about, you know, controversy in the Wall Street Journal might argue about it. But most scientists have now come to 
uh, agreement. And, and the thing is to get the disease, plaques and tangles have to go to neuroinflammation or you don't get symptoms. That's why you can have these rare cases, very rare cases of plaques and tangles with no dementia because the inflammation didn't pop in. And we actually found genetic factors. Uh, we discovered the first Alzheimer's gene that causes neuroinflammation, CD33. Then another one, TREM2. And those genes control the neuroinflammation in response to the plaques and tangles. Some people have protective mutations in those genes. So despite plaques and tangles, they don't get the neuroinflammation response and they remain symptom free. So I think we can explain so, all this now without controversy. Well, why not then just take an anti-inflammatory for the rest of your life? And hmm. if you, with the presumption that if you don't have inflammation, you're not going to get this disease. Because uh, anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, et cetera, don't work very well in the brain. Some of them don't get into the brain. And the thing is that this, the neuroinflammation in the brain is very different than the inflammation when you cut your knee. So it's different types of cells involved, you know, and, in our body, we talk about T cells and macrophages. In the brain, it's mainly these two cell types, microglia. Glia in Greek means glue, because we used to think these little cells glued the nerve cells together. Uh, we now know the microglial cells and what are called the astrocytes, are kind of the, the worker bees, the housekeepers, the nurturers in, in the brain um, for the nerve cells. And they're usually nurturing, but when they think something's wrong, meaning they smell nerve cells dying, even a few here and there from tangles and plaques, they kick in and say, wipe out the area. That's neuroinflammation. To quell that, you can't just use a simple you know, steroid or you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen. So we're, since we discovered the genes that control it, now we're doing screens and we've actually found drugs that control that neuroinflammatory process. One of them is actually even in a phase three clinical trial right now, um, and uh, we have great, great hope for it. It's a repurposed uh, drug that's been reformulated by the company that I've been involved with called AZ Therapies, and their phase three trial is going. And, you know, so far in the interim analyses, things are looking, um, you know, uh, optimistic. We'll see what happens. So how long before we can, we know the results of that particular drug? Well, the trial wouldn't read out for another year or so. Um, probably even up to 2020. But, you know, sometimes companies can do what are called interim analyses. If things are looking like, like you know, you look, even though the data is blinded, you can see if some of the patients are getting worse and some are getting better, because remember, you have a placebo. So you always look for separation. You want to see some patients going in different directions. And that gives you hope that, hey, maybe there's something going on, even though you don't know who's on drug or who's um, a, a placebo. Um, so, you know, I, you know, the company, I, 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 chair is, I chair the scientific advisory board for conflict of interest purposes. I do have equity in the company. I want to be transparent about that. But, you know, they could decide to do an interim. There's many things you can do along the way to even take a sneak peek and see if things are going well. And that's really going to be up to, uh, up to them. Okay. Now, I want to segue um, into lifestyle factors. Um, obviously, it's what a, a lot of us um, who have been impacted by Alzheimer's disease care about. What can we do now, today? Um, and what 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 is science um, really telling us? Um, I thought I, I've noted that, you know, I, I think it's really uh, you're unique in the sense that, you know, you're you're delving deep into the science, but you also believe you've written several books with Deepak Chopra on brain health and what we can do today to really help our brains. Um, 
I think a good way to, to transition from genetics to um, uh, lifestyle, we have a couple of people commenting right now that they're um, homozygous or have a loved one who's homozygous APOE4, um, which is known as the Alzheimer's gene because it elevates your risk um, of getting Alzheimer's if you, if you have this um, genetic variant. Um, but one question that has come in that I thought was a quite a good one is if you do are homozygous um, for APOE4, is it really worth it to, to do the lifestyle um, uh, changes? Uh, will they work? Yes, it's worth it. And here's the thing. These rare mutations in the early onset genes that we found, like amyloid precursor protein APP, presenilins, those mutations guarantee the disease by 60 years old. And actually my colleagues and I are working on a drug to stop those that hopefully will go into phase one trials next year. But the most common Alzheimer's gene is APOE or APOE4. And if you have one or two copies of E4, your risk is increased, but you're not guaranteed to get the disease. You know, only a small percent of mutations in Alzheimer's are guaranteed to give you uh, disease. With APOE4, I would say not only is it worth it, it's obligatory to do everything you can with your lifestyle to stave off the disease. We also know that APOE4 has to work together with other genes. We now know 35 other genes, 35 other Alzheimer's genes that work together with APOE um, to determine your risk once you inherit an E4 or not. Um, so the genetics is much more sophisticated than it was years ago. That's been a big breakthrough is I run the Cure Alzheimer's Fund Alzheimer's Genome Project. And now beyond APOE and the first three familial early onset genes, we're looking at like three dozen genes that show validated association. So there's much more than APOE4 and E4 is not insurmountable. So that's why we provide in the books I wrote with Deepak Chopra, all three books, Super Brain, Super Genes, and the newest one, The Healing Self, we provide lifestyle guidelines to help maintain brain health, stave off the disease. And I should say, we also started a new center at Mass General, the McCants Center. Henry McCants is the chair of the Cure Alzheimer's Fund board, co-chair, and he uh, has now uh, uh, provided the uh, support to start a new center called the McCants Center for Brain Health, where we're strictly studying what can we do in our lifestyle to, to keep our brains healthy, promote brain health, preserve brain health, and stave off diseases like Alzheimer's. So we're actually doing the hardcore science on these lifestyle changes that we can talk about. And um, actually, appropriately, uh, one viewer just asked, um, Dr. Tanzi has coined an acronym SHIELD um, with action steps to help your brain stay healthy. Can he tell us a little bit more about those steps? Well, thanks to that viewer for providing a perfect segue. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, um, um, it was actually a, a, about just, just under a year ago um, that when I was going to do the uh, Dr. Oz uh, show on Alzheimer's, um, I was trying to come up with an easy way to explain what to do and, you know, do my best thinking in the shower. I actually keep one of these little pads called, called wet, wet water notes or something. You can actually take notes in the shower on a, on a pad and it doesn't, you know, <laughs> erase. Um, Your brain so, never shuts off. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it says it, it's, their motto on this pad is don't let your great thoughts go down the drain or something like that. <laughs> so I usually, actually, I wrote a lot, of, all three books I wrote with Deepak, Super Brain, Super Genius, I wrote a lot of it on those pads. 
you know, and they think about it and you go write a chapter. But anyway, um, you know, I came up with this idea of shield your brain. So I was thinking about what are the different things you have to do that we wrote about in the books. And um, in fact, my next book, which I'll be doing solo uh, without Deepak, I will, will most likely be on the shield, will expound on the shield uh, 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 acronym. So shield, S stands for sleep. And it's never been more important to get eight hours of sleep. And you don't have to get eight hours of consistent sleep, right? Um, what you want to do is go into a dream cycle like REM. And when you come out, you go into the deepest sleep, which is called slow wave sleep. That's when the scrubby bubbles hit. That's when your, your brain. So micro, yeah, the janitors up. of our brain clean out our brains. Is that, yeah, the, that's fine, right? Yeah, the microglia eat, eat up the debris. Some of the debris gets forced out of the brain into the spinal fluid. Um, so I like to call, call that post-dream slow wave sleep mental floss. It's when you clean your brain. So you have to allow yourself to sleep enough during the day to go in, in and out of enough dream cycles so that you go into that rinse cycle several times. So if you only slept five or six hours, right, then just take an hour long nap or another hour long nap. Just get so that you at least get into a dream cycle and then to the slow wave sleep before you wake up and try to get eight hours of that a day. It cleans, it's the best way to clean out your brain. And if you don't do that, you will accumulate more debris and that will cause more inflammation. So, I, you know, sleep has never been more important. So I, I do want to interject here because sleep is a topic we all talk about because we all don't get enough of it, um, including yours truly. Um, but um, I think it's important to emphasize that um, it has to be natural sleep, right? We shouldn't be popping ambience and consider that sleep because I've um, been told that a sleeping pill is not going to do set off the same process in your brain as just falling asleep naturally. Well, so I've I, I get because I get this question all the time, right? If I get if I take ambient or sleep aid, will I still get this benefit? <clears throat> so it turns out that with a sleeping pill, you may not get the right cycle of dream sleep, but you do have quite a few rounds of that slow wave deep sleep when the brain cleans itself. So if that's all you have right now, like I don't I don't want to support anybody taking sleeping pills or becoming dependent on them. But if that's all you can do right now. Um, until maybe your life becomes a little easier and you can sleep better. Um, and I can tell you about a device I invented for that in a minute. Um, but then, you know, it's better than nothing. You still get some of that slow wave sleep that cleans the brain, even with Ambient, but you don't get that healthy REM dream sleep you need to be psychologically alert and to be, you know, in a good mood when you wake up. But um, I invented a, with, with a fellow named David Major and together with Deepak Chopra, we invented a few years ago a, a light and sound device. So it's glasses that you close your eyes and you get this a blinking light of different colors. It's kind of you know fun. And I wrote I'm a musician on the side, so I wrote some very you know ambient music, and the music and the light entrains your brain to get down to the same frequency as when you're in slow wave sleep. So in other words, it's light and sound to get your brain to relax down to that theta and then delta, where it's a slower frequency that gets you. It's a, it goes along with sleep. And what we're finding is that for people who have a lot of trouble sleeping, this device helps you get to sleep. So we're going to be working on it. We're going to make a sleep mask version of it so that you put this on and then the lights go off about maybe 10, 20 minutes. Your eyes are closed. 
and the, and, the, and the sound and the light and trains your brain down to as if you're sleeping. And we think it will help a lot of people to sleep. So we're going, we already have the glasses, but we're going to be launching the, uh, the, the mask. And I think we can help a lot of people with it because it's so important to sleep. It's so important to clean your brain, especially when you're older. If you need a guinea pig, I volunteer. By the way, it's called, uh, the, the name Deepak named it Deepak Chopra Dreamweaver. That's the current device with the glasses. I don't know what we'll call the sleep mask when we put it, but the dream, as they stand, the Deepak Chopra Dreamweaver glasses will do the job. But then you have glasses on when you're sleeping, so they have to hope they fall off. That's why we want to make a sleep mask version of it. But for now, that's right. What, yeah. So, so the, anyway, sorry, I, I set us off a little bit too on a different course with sleep. So you were talking about shields. Um, we're up to H. Yeah, H stands for handle stress, right? That means everything from, you know, this term FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, if you don't get back to someone on a text right away or email or, or, or message, don't flip out. Don't have too many expectations of yourself. Don't have too many expectations of others, you know, um, Basically, expectation is a big uh, cause of stress, even more than we know. We're expecting things all the time of ourselves and others where you can just kind of let it go and, you know, envisage what you want, but don't force it. Don't, don't, don't stress out. And the other thing is to meditate, right? So meditation, we actually published a study um, last year that meditation helps change gene expression against um, Alzheimer's pathology, against inflammation. We actually, it was the first true quantification of how meditation affects your entire genome. We published those results in a, a nature journal called uh, Translational Psychiatry. So well, sorry, I just, wanna, I, I just wanna interject there. What exactly does that mean when you say change gene expression? Does that actually changing the way that, that our genes are? I mean, I, I've, I thought your DNA is your DNA. Like yeah. wh what does that mean exactly? Right. So this was the whole topic of uh, the second book I wrote with Deepak, uh, um, Super Genes. So you're not changing the DNA you inherited. You're stuck with that. Of course, maybe CRISPR-Cas will change that, but I hope not. You know, I, I've been working on the genome for a long time, and a real geneticist looks at the genome the way a captain or a sailor looks at the ocean. You respect it. And, and just when you think you know it, it's going to take you out if you try to control it. So I, that's a whole other topic. But um, I would say that so basically there's something called epigenetics. That means that your lifestyle, your habits, basically control the activity of your genes. The DNA is the same, but genes, you know, making proteins or RNA, it's like you can turn them up or turn them down. They can, a gene making a certain protein can make a lot of it or little of it. Then picture 22,000 genes all making these different proteins and RNAs and then turning up the rheostat up or down on each one. Well, basically those create programs. So you could have 2,000 genes all adjusting themselves up and down because you just changed your diet from junk food every day to organic healthy food um, every day. The beautiful thing of epigenetics is that when those gene expression patterns change for the good, you the DNA itself gets chemically modified so that, that ex those expression programs stick and stay with you. So if you wanna change a habit and you do something for 60 or 60, 70 days consistently, like st stay away from junk food, processed food, have a healthy diet or plant-based plant diet, Within two or three months, your gene expression profiles change, chemical modifications hit the DNA and kind of lock it in until you take on a new habit, and now you get on autopilot. Those genes now will make you only want good food. So if you stick with something for 60, 70 days, thanks to epigenetics, 
and neuroplasticity in the brain, which is, is adaptable to your lifestyle, right? Stick with it 60 to 70 days and then their brain and genes go on autopilot to make sure you stay with it without trying. And that's the beautiful thing about uh, epigenetics and neuroplasticity. That's why we wrote the first two books uh, about that. Okay, um, so I, what letter are we up to now? Well, we did well, I, 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 I stands for interaction. So that's what your viewers are doing now, interacting, staying social, uh, going out of your way to see family and friends. The brain is a very social organ. It likes to, it, it needs to know it's connected to the hive. Right now, connectivity has never been higher than with media like this. Um, but you know, the double-edged sword of media can cause stress as well, like we were discussing. But interacting, same social, people who are lonely are at higher risk for Alzheimer's. Not living alone. If you're living alone and you're happy about it and you interact with people when you wish, that's fine. If you're living alone and stressing out about it, that's loneliness, that's a risk factor. But social engagement is very impossible. That's why I is interaction. E, you can probably guess. E is exercise. So yes. we, we have a new paper through Cure Alzheimer's Fund funding coming out in the very high journal science uh, in a couple of months where we show how exercise um, actually causes the birth of new nerve cells in the hippocampus. Hippocampus is the short-term memory area that gets inundated and uh, attacked in Alzheimer's. And we showed that if you grow new nerve cells in the hippocampus induced by exercise, then we could make Alzheimer's mice who are cognitively impaired better that the new nerve cells help the brain. So it's kind of like growing your own stem cells without having to you know, inject stem cells into the brain, which we still can't do very well yet, right? This is just exercise. And we figured out the mechanism by which exercise does that. Um, and so we're trying to pharmacologically mimic that now. We actually figured out in the paper how to pharmacologically mimic the effects of exercise in causing new nerve cells to be born in the brain. Now, in layman's terms, though, um, is exercise good for our brains as well? Because we fire off endorphins. Endorphins create uh, more blood flow. I mean, is, can you be that simplistic yeah. or no? No, no, no. Exercise does a ton of it. First of all, it keeps your heart healthy, healthy heart, healthy brain. A lot of the attack on the brain as we get older is neurovascular stroke, mini strokes, un undetected TIAs or trans ischemic um, type strokes. And so basically um, exercise helps keep the heart healthy. It helps reduce inflammation in the brain. Um, it even turns on enzymes in the brain to clear the amyloid plaque. So there's a bunch of things exercise does uh, that's great, great for the brain, great for the heart. And, we, and it's never been truer that what's good for the heart's good for the brain. Okay. L is, uh, L is learn new things. Yes. So what we're doing right now is we're learning new things. So our viewers right now, uh, protected unless we're putting them to sleep and then they're still protected so <laughs> uh, <laughs> but learning new things when you make new synapses so you have a hundred billion neurons in your brain trillions of connections or synapses as they're called that make the neural network and every everything every time you experience something new your neural network is changing that's called neuroplasticity well in alzheimer's you know plaques tangles inflammation cell death the bottom line is what correlates most with dementia and Alzheimer's disease is the loss of synapses. That's the bottom line. Everything leads in the end to loss of synapses. And so the more synapses you make in life, the more you can lose before you have issues, right? So we tell people 
Think all the time, especially as you get older, about your synaptic reserve. When you learn new things, you make new synapses. You strengthen the synapses and pathways you already have. Why? Because learning is always based on association. Anything new has to be connected to what you already knew. So you make new synapses and connect them with the old synapses you already had and strengthen those and make new ones. So that synaptic reserve will serve you. You know, I, I tell people when you're going to retire, don't just think about financial reserve, think about synaptic reserve so you can enjoy your money as well. So, and I have to tell you, I have to add, since I've been delving so much into Alzheimer's and, and watching the disease um, with my mom, I decided um, my 11 year old uh, had a, has a piano teacher who comes to the house once a week. And I thought, you know what, why not? I'm gonna try learning piano. And I have to tell you that, you know, I'm right-handed. And so my right hand had more natural memory and I'd have to train my brain on my left hand because it just was not natural. And after playing for a few months, I noticed that my left hand was almost taking on a life of its own yeah. um, without ha me having to just stare at my left hand and really think about my left hand. And then I thought, maybe this is what science is trying to tell us, that something's happening in my brain where, um, I'm retraining my brain um, and retraining, you know, what's not natural to me, the left side um, or what controls the left side um, to act in, in a different way. And that has to be good for your brain. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great example. I mean, I, I you know, I play piano and I play uh, keyboards professionally on the side, mostly recording in the studio. Um, and to this day, even though I've been playing since I was a kid, uh, just the other day on piano, um, I was noticing my left hand was doing new things. You know, I, was, I, I like to play jazz and it was doing new things. And, and even though I've been playing piano for decades and play every day, I, I still have my left hand doing something new, you know, just last week. And sometimes it's, it's just great to have both sides of the brain firing. And what you see in all the folks is where you see by MRI, functional MRI, the most connectivity between left brain and right brain, where there's more connectivity folks tend to age better and have better brain health. That's why in, the, in, the, in Superbrain, the uh, first book I wrote with Deepak, you know, we talked about this idea that learning new things and just doing anything new, like even just forcing yourself to brush your teeth with your left hand rather than your right hand in the morning, or putting on your pants with the other leg first, or as you go into work, take a different uh, commute a different way, even if you're using GPS, or instead of taking the train, you know, take something else. So I mean, the, the idea is every time you have something new and learn something new, the brain loves it. That's what really nurtures uh, the brain. You combine that with exercise. The exercise is making you tired so you sleep better, right? Um, you're interacting with people more. You're dealing with stress. These are all the, the keys until we get to the last letter of shield, which is D. Which diet. Is, yes, diet. <laughs> and diet is also immensely important. I mean, you know, you are what you eat, you know, and... I think we've seen for heart health and brain health, there's nothing better than a plant-based diet. And I know that there are trendy books out there to say that we should just be eating, you know, uh, tons of red meat like cavemen did. And I remind people that we died at 25 years, 25 years old back then when people ate paleo diets. Um, but, you know, there's all kinds of trendy diets. But you know what? The, the Mediterraneans have been doing it right for thousands of years. The Mediterranean diet is better than anything. So I'm personally vegetarian. So I get my protein from other sources. But you know, Mediterranean diet says cut out the red meat, more fish, olive oil, with some butter, but lots of plant-based, lots of nuts, right? Lots of fiber. Uh, you know, despite Tom Brady, who I respect a lot, you can eat tomatoes, tomatoes are good for you. 
than at that. Um, <laughs> mushrooms are very good for you. Um, so I think that just follow the, just, you know, look up every, everything you can find on what a Mediterranean diet is. And, this, and in epidemiology studies, nothing's been shown better than a Mediterranean diet. And then, and then along the lines of diet, there's also supplements. And, you know, as you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, brain supplements. And frankly, yes. frankly, most of it is not scientifically tested. Most brain pills, they try to shove 40 ingredients in one pill this big. And even if some of those ingredients are good for you, there's no way in a pill that big that you that with 40 ingredients, you have enough of any one of them to do anything. So you're basically paying 50, you know, 50 to 100 bucks a month for nothing. But there are some of them that are concentrating on one ingredient that can be good. So in our Alzheimer's in a dish, we found we screened for natural products that might promote, that might hit the plaques and tangles and the neuroinflammation. And so there are a few supplements and ingredients that I do suggest to family and friends. I say check with your doctor before you take them. That I think that I think can be helpful. Things like cat's claw, um, which is a vine from Peru. I started a company with a friend, Alan Snow. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's a supplement called Precepta um, at PreceptaBrain.com, and this is cat's claw from Peru, uh, mixed with oolong tea. The cat's claw helps hit the, the plaques and tangles and helps quell the neuroinflammation in our dish. And then the oolong tea is meant to be an antioxidant to stop the free radicals from inflammation. So that's good. There's also a lot of people taking nicotinamide riboside, which is uh, also called Niagen, N-I-A-G-E-N. There's a company uh, called Chromadex that makes uh, something called True Niagen, which is just nicotinamide riboside. And what that does, it adds cellular energy. So when if a cell has enough energy, it's less likely to make a tangle. Like that's been shown. If a, if a microglial cell that's normally good in the brain, housekeeping and, and cleaning up amyloid, has enough energy, it's less likely to become inflammatory and start killing nerve cells. So this nicotinamide riboside or the true niagen ups the uh, cellular energy. So I personally take those, those uh, two. Um, and uh, the third one is the old uh, Ayurvedic, uh, ashwagandha, A-S-H-W-A-G-A-N-D-H-A, ashwagandha. And that has been shown to help get plaque out of the brain, uh, export the plaque out of your brain. That can make some people sleepy. So people generally take that one at night, just in case in the beginning it, it makes you sleepy. And ashwagandha has to come from the root. And so um, I use uh, the ashwagandha that comes from a company called Douglas Labs. And so I share this information with family and friends. I share it with our local football team, the Patriots, you know, to help keep those brains healthy. Um, and, you know, in our Center for Brain Health, we want to start doing trials on these things, you know, see if we can stave off Alzheimer's, promote brain health, looking at different biomarkers with supplements like this. So there's very few that I actually believe in, in terms of supplements. Most of them are unfortunately snake oil, but there are a few that can really help you. Where are you on ketones? Because we've had a couple of conversations um, in this series on um, ketones being an alternative source of fuel for your brain. They do cross the the brain blood barrier. Um, and I, I know more research needs to go into it. But um, I would say, you know, if you if you look at um, how our brains work, um, glucose being the main fuel for our brain, um, an alternative source of fuel, um, supplementing ketones, um, could there be validity in that, in that hypothesis? Yeah, any, any way to increase energy in the brain is a good idea. 
right? I talked about the, the true niogenic contaminant riboside. It increases the fuel in the cell, ATP, through the, uh, 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 this particular pathway using NAD+. Um, glucose, there, you know, you get stories where uh, someone has a dad with Alzheimer's and they eat an ice cream cone and they, they, they chirp up for a while and feel better. There's more energy to the brain. But you don't want to have too much sugar, right? So the, the, um, the anaerobic pathway for energy is using things like coconut oil and, uh, and uh, MCTs, medium-chain triglycerides or ketones. Um, you know, I would say that if you're taking a healthy uh, source of ketones uh, or MCTs or coconut oil, there's nothing wrong with giving your brain more energy, and I think it can, can help the brain deal with Alzheimer's pathology as it's coming on. I, I, you know, we can't say it's a cure to the disease, but I think it helps. And, um, and on the other hand, though, you don't want to go too overboard because you don't, you know, it's still fat, you know, and you don't, you know, obesity is also a risk factor for Alzheimer's. And so you don't want too much fat. So you got to find, you know, a right way to measure it. I think there are companies that sell now powders with mixes of ketones, MCTs, et cetera, that won't give you too much fat but get you the benefits. But I think there's a lot of promise there. Anything that, that gets energy going in the brain again, we're even using bioelectronic methods. We're using transcranial direct current stimulation um, where that energy can help the brain. We're using ultrasound. There's anything that energizes and put, puts more energy into cells in the brain can help. Um, and I know that sounds kind of vague and woo-woo for a scientist to say, but in each case, you got to just test. You know, that's why we set up this new center, the McCann Centers. Let's just do the test. Let's see what, you know, something like ketones or, uh, or, or coconut oil will actually do. Do those actual trials so we can speak with more, you know, um, uh, authority and reliability about it. But there's, there's promise there, I think. Do you think that research should now really focus on the prevention? I mean, if we know that plaques appear in our brain up to 20 years before we see um, a symptom of Alzheimer's, sh should everybody redirect the energy into prevention? And should more money actually go into lifestyle studies that you're talking about? Because, you know, if it doesn't end in a magic pill, um, a lot of people feel like, pharma is not going to go there. Um, so how, I mean, where should we be heading um, in order to really change the way um, or, or what people know about, you know, maintaining healthy brains and, and, and how that's backed with science? I mean, what's the right direction in all of this? Yeah. So this is very analogous to what we've done with heart disease and cancer, right? We, met, we now live our lives in a way to avoid exposure to carcinogens, right? We keep track of what causes cancer. We live our lives so that we keep track of our cholesterol and keep our hearts healthy. Um, think about this. We don't diagnose Alzheimer's disease until you have symptoms, meaning that you have enough damage in the brain that you're suffering from early stages of dementia. Imagine if we did the same thing to cancer. The symptoms of cancer, large tumor, pain, organ failure. Imagine if we waited for symptoms before you treated cancer. And now when somebody has a huge organ, has organ failure with a, a huge tumor, we're saying, okay, now we're going to give you a tumor suppressor. It wouldn't work. Let's say you wait until somebody has a heart attack or needs a bypass, and you say, okay, now you should start taking your statin to lower your cholesterol. That's what we've been doing in Alzheimer's, right? We have to change that. I would say what we're going to call prevention against plaques will be treatment. You start treating the pathology two decades before symptoms occur, so you never get to symptoms. And prevention, 
might end up being what causes their plaques. Maybe if we find certain viruses and microbes trigger the plaques, maybe primary prevention will be antivirals, antimicrobials, or vaccination against the microbes that trigger the plaque. So I think that I agree that yes, we have to hit these pathologies way before symptoms. We can call it primary prevention, secondary prevention. We can even call it treatment, but we have to do all of this. We can't wait for symptoms to treat this disease. However, with that said, even for those who already have symptoms, right? If you hit the neuroinflammation and quell that, which is what we're trying to do with some of these new drugs like at AZ therapies, there's a chance to help patients who already have the disease by hitting neuroinflammation. But plaques and tangles, you have to hit very early. And that should be early um, prevention. I have, I'm working with my colleague at UCSD, Steve Wagner. We have a, a drug called a gamma secretase modulator that we invented 20 years ago. It's just finally coming to fruition with the help of Cure Alzheimer's Fund, the help of the uh, NIH um, with their blueprint program where you develop drugs with them. And we're hoping to get into a phase one clinical trial. That drug will hit the amyloid. Even if it, even in people will have these early onset familial mutations that are so deadly, guaranteeing the disease by 60, this drug still works against those mutations in the dish and the mice. So our goal is to get this, this into trials next year. And it maybe someday that drug will become the statin of Alzheimer's. In other words, uh, you keep uh, your cholesterol down with a Lipitor, but if you want to be, keep your amyloid down 20 years before symptoms, let's say the future is at 50, you get a brain scan, your amyloid's higher than it should be, and you say, oh, we got to get your amyloid down, just like we got to get your cholesterol down, and here's the little drug you take every day to do that. I think that's how we're going to nip this disease in the bud, and we're on our way. Okay, we're getting a couple of questions in, um, uh, in response to um, Shields. Um, one is, is it, is it, is there a time when it's too late to practice these things? Absolutely, um, absolutely not. No. Even in fact, you've been you want to practice it more. You want to practice it. The older you are, the more you want to practice it. That's when you. What if you've been, you have a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's? If you have a, a diagnosis, we can't say shield is going to cure you, right? Exercise, diet, it's not going to cure you. But if you practice shield, um, the hope is it will slow down the disease. The hope is. That's why we have this new McCann Center for Brain Health at Mass General where now we'll test that. We already tested meditation for effects on genes. So now we'll be taking all the parts of SHIELD and actually do clinical trials that pharma companies will never do on lifestyle interventions and quantitate their positive effects and look at biomarkers, omics-based biomarkers, look at imaging, cognitive testing, correlate all that. Um, we, you know, my colleagues and I also invented a device that tracks eye movement and head eye movement uh, as an indicator of inflammation in the brain. We're using it to detect concussion in, in football, um, where the idea would be somebody gets a bang to the head, like a concussion, and rather than just have the neurologist, you know, swing his finger around, this device would uh, react neuro as the company, and this device would track the eye movement as an indicator of how much dysfunction is there in the brain synaptic dysfunction, inflammation. And we think that even though we're, de we're devising, we have this device being made for concussion, uh, we think that maybe in the future, this could become like a blood pressure cuff for, for the brain. That, you know, you check your baseline, you do this test with your eyes and your head movement as an indicator of how much inflammation is in your brain. This is another thing we want to test at the new center. So we want to combine everything, biomarkers, device, imaging, blood tests, everything to say, what is your brain health index? What is your BHI? You know your, your heart rate, your B, blood pressure, what's your BHI, your brain health index? That's where we're moving now because that's what you have to maintain. 
Are you, we have an, um, another question that's come up about exercise and, um, you know, is there any research going on? We know that, you know, exercise is good for us, but there's also been reports that it has to be quite um, rigorous exercise. So is there any indication that, you know, the, high, the, the more you get your heart, um, the faster your heart is beating, the better or um, moderate? Um, do, we, do we know that now? There's a ceiling effect on that, right? I, I would say that for most people, a brisk walk, getting your heart rate up from, you know, whatever it is, 60 or 70 up to 90. Um, it's not necessarily aerobic. You don't need aerobics. But just getting your heart rate up even 10, 20 percent above normal for a half hour to an hour with a brisk walk um, is enough to get blood flow going. You don't need the full aerobic workout by any means. You just need to move. You know, um, I, you know, I, I, I. I, I think it's important for people to know that even meditating, right? People say, I don't know how to meditate. I helped with a book a friend of mine wrote that's called, if you're meditating, you're doing it right. You know, if you're exercising, you're doing it right. As long as you're moving, getting blood flow going. For meditation, you know, some people meditate to get really calm, right? Um, some people like me like to meditate where, we, where you focus on one particular topic and try to just focus there and get insights on it and then sweep away all the sensations, feelings, and thoughts that come in, that's, that's an alpha meditation, right? A, a, a relaxation meditation will get you down to theta or delta. And it doesn't matter how you do it, just as long as you're still and you're just kind of just sweeping away thoughts, feelings, sensations, images, either to get totally calm, focusing on your breathing, or focusing on some, something you wanna think about, um, but in just a very vague kind of visual way. Um, in an exercise, just move. And don't, you know, uh, don't sit down for more than an hour. I'm going to have to stand up soon. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you. Uh, I find, though, I, I, I'm a runner. I run every morning. And I actually find my runs are my meditation. That's when I go into kind of this meditative thought. So maybe you could do tw um, two at one time. <laughs> I, do, I, I swim. And what I like to do is I'll do, a, I'll do some laps or I or swim in an endless pool. And then, you know, you really get your heart rate going and you're breathing hard. And then you stop. And then you just meditate. And you and it's the easiest possible time to focus on your heartbeat and your breathing because it's so pronounced because you just worked out. So I like to go back and forth between swimming and then kind of just close my eyes and just focus on what my heart and my breathing is doing and then go back and swim again. So we have a question about diet, and I think this one's quite um, clever in the sense it's asking, do you think that the American style of food production is actually hurting our brain health? Um, and as we get really confused when you say, okay, organic, non-organic, uh, you know, there's lots of processed foods there. Um, how is it? I mean, are there any studies out there that, that say, you know, that the way that we're eating, especially in America, is actually hurting us. Depends on how you're eating, right? I, don't, I mean, you know, organic is preferred, but you, you know, it's impossible to be completely organic. Um, I would say, though, that junk foods that capitalize on salt, sugar, and fat, um, those are bad for you. Too much sugar, too much salt, too much fat. And the thing is, we crave salt, sugar, fat because, you know, 20, 30,000 years ago, that's what kept us alive. You needed sugar for energy, right? You needed salt because you're running all the time and to get homeostatic balance. And you needed fat to get ready for the winter, right? So evolutionarily, our brainstem, our primitive brain is saying, fat, sugar, salt, go, 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 get it. Eat the Big Mac, right? But it's bad for you. 
uh, maybe once in a blue moon, but otherwise it's bad for you. So getting away from the fast food and the junk food um, is, is really the key. Sometimes you eat processed foods, you know, because you're in a hurry. We have lifestyles. The thing is, nothing's perfect. What you want to do is just try to get a plant-based diet as much as you can. Make sure you, we didn't talk about the microbiome of the gut, but your gut microbiome is controlling everything from mood to inflammation in your brain. We even published papers showing the gut microbiome, the bacteria in your gut control plaques in the brain, right? So you want to feed your gut microbiome with fiber, prebiotics. I'm really worried about people getting so upset about carbs and gluten that they're not eating whole grains. You know, we need whole grains. You know, we're going too extreme in this direction of people who are not even gluten sensitive and not eating gluten. Um, well, it's fine, but you have to have some whole grains and some fiber. That's what your bacteria want in your gut. And a probiotic is okay. It will help 50 billion bacteria, but there are trillions in there. So you have to feed the ones you have. That's more important than just taking a probiotic. And that means whole grains and fiber. So don't completely wipe out carbs and gluten and all that. Just, you know, do it moderately. Stay away from the highly processed foods. You know, I mean, some of our, the junk foods that you buy in wrappers actually are made of petroleum products, you know, polyethylene glycol and stuff like that. Um, so stay as natural as you can. But I think there are many things in our food chain that are toxic and can kill us. Um, and we're not going to get rid of them. Um, but, the, but the point is you want to just find balance. Try to have as organic and plant-based diet as you can. And once in a while, you can cheat and have a Twinkie or, you know, or your Big Mac. But not often. Maybe not a Twinkie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know I wouldn't um, have a Big Mac. I've been vegetarian since college, and I love it. So, <laughs> so um, and, and what you're highlighting, talking about all of these different lifestyle changes that we can make, is really the relation between one system and another. So your gut to your brain, heart to your brain. Are we studying enough about the interaction between these systems as to understand, like unraveling um, more about Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, in fact, the, the new book I just wrote with Deepak Chopra, The Healing Self, is all about that. It's all about, you know, we, we emphasize that the word heal comes from the word whole. So to, to heal is to be whole. The word holy and the word heal comes from the same root of the word whole, being whole. So we talk about finding, integrating with self-awareness, mind, body, brain, spirit, and, and taking time to be mindful and self-aware of, of, of what is your brain doing right now? What sensations is it bringing? What feelings, which thoughts, right? Focus on your breathing. Focus on your heart. Integrate body and mind together. That anytime you take the time to find that wholeness, you're promoting the healing self. That's the idea behind that. And now we're trying to, now more and more we're seeing how does the brain and heart work together? How do how does the gut microbiome and the enteric nervous system of the gut interact with the nervous system of the brain? And it's amazing what we find out. We find out that some bacteria actually make neurotransmitters that go to the brain through the gut-brain axis. We find that certain uh, bacteria can affect how many plaques you have, that certain bacteria affect inflammation in the brain. So keeping your gut healthy, the D and shield, the diet part. The gut microbiome is a big part of that. Um, so taking a probiotic is great, but you have to also read about prebiotics. Prebiotics are probably more important than probiotics, and that means feeding those bacteria with the right foods, high-fiber foods and, uh, and roughage and that type of thing. But frankly, uh, when I go to the health food store or and I look at even the just the probiotics section, I'm so confused. Yeah. I mean, there's probiotics for everything with like – 
200 gazillion whatever's in them. Yeah. And, and you're, you're like, well, which one is the right one for me? I mean, how yeah, do you, yeah. how do people get this information? When yeah. I'm at the store and I see a hundred different probiotics, how do I know which one is the right one? We don't know. We don't know. I mean, I take a chance. I take ultraflora 50 billion because I looked at the bacteria in it and they match well with the beneficial bacteria. But I don't know if Ultra there's another one. 50 billion. Yeah. I don't know. But, but you know what? It's still nothing compared to feeding yourself well. The probiotic is frosting on the cake. The cake is eating the prebiotics, right? In, this, in Super Genes and in The Healing Self, in both books, we go into utter detail on diet of what you need to feed your microbiome, exactly what's the prebiotic diet. So we, we, you know, we did a lot of research on what diets um, will actually feed your microbiome. What, what's an anti-inflammatory diet, chronic inflammation, is what causes, in the end, all your problems. It's, whether it's heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, inflammation in the end is, is, is the executioner, the killer. So anti-inflammatory diets are very important. More important than the, the probiotic you take. And I also worry some of the new probiotics are using bacteria we don't even know much about. And so I worry about whether some of them might not even be safe, you know, or not. So it's a very unregulated area. Um, is there more research going into it, though? Absolutely. That's part of, again, this Center for Brain Health, McCann Center for Brain Health. We're going to be testing, and we have a large um, consortium project going on right now with other collaborators looking at the microbiome of the gut and comparing that to what types of bacteria you see in the brain uh, when you're young, uh, middle-aged, old, or with Alzheimer's. So this is, of course, based on autopsies of brains of different aged people who passed. And then comparing that to what, what's the average microbiome you see in the gut and we're actually seeing you can get beneficial bacteria from the gut in the brain. How they get there, I don't know. So this is wide open area we know very little about, but this is what we're exploring it very um, vigorously these days. Okay, and I wanna thank you. We've had a whole hour with Dr. Rudy Tanzi. I'm so grateful. Um, key takeaway really is it's never uh, too early to start maintaining your brain health. Um, there are a lot of things that we can do um, to really help our brains. Uh, it takes a lot of time and focus, of course, you know, with from piano to um, exercise to taking the right supplements. Um, but, you know, it is important. I think it, which is, is a key takeaway. And um, Rudy, we want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Um, you obviously are involved in a lot um, and we look forward to really keeping tabs on um, some of the lifestyle studies that, that you're doing um, and um, yeah, just staying in touch. And it, it was great. Thank you so much. You know, I like, I like the fact you said it's never too early, but I would, as we emphasized earlier, it's never too late as well. So yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's and I'm sure a lot of the people in our community will appreciate that. So thank you so much. Um, and be rest assured that being patient is going to stay on top of a lot of these studies um, and report on them and and get the information out there. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. You're very welcome. And thank you for having me. It's been that was a fast hour. OK, great. <laughs> Take care. Thank you.